Welcome to Hablando de Tequila. I'm your host, Zach Chabal. Throughout this six-part series, we'll explore the history, people, culture, and future of tequila. On today's episode, I'm joined by David Allen, the Director of Trade Advocacy for Patron Tequila, as we discuss all things agave, its cultivation and harvesting, and how it's distilled to produce that magical liquid we call tequila. David, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that I'm looking forward to chatting with you about tequila and about the um, specifics of Patron. But let's start with this very simple question. What is tequila? Well, tequila is an agave spirit. It's a, a, a distillate from agave that has historic significance to Mexico. It's a product of place. And it's something that, you know, you 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 recognize tequila as you might see it today going back at least 200 years um, but really into the ancient history of Mexico the agave plant has been distilled at least as far back as as the Spanish arrival so we know that is sort of from the official story of tequila and then there's emerging evidence that suggests that there was actually pre-colonial distillation that Mesoamerican peoples had had cracked the code and figured out how to ferment and distill this endemic plant to their region uh, back before the arrival of European-style distillation. Um, But we also know that they were drinking fermented beverages made from agave. This plant uh, grows all over Mexico and is a kind of crucial part of Mesoamerican and Mexican culture. And we we have evidence, uh, and we also suspect, of course, before the written time, uh, that, that agave fermented beverages uh, were used in all manner of you know ritual uh, and uh, diplomatic functions. So mm-hmm. it, it basically it's on it's on the shelf today at your local liquor store, and it also has uh, been being produced on on this continent for for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, or s- some variation of it. And then, as far as tequila specifically, as differentiated from maybe other agave spirits, what is it that sets tequila apart? Is it the you know what 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 are the things that make a tequila a tequila and not something else? Tequila in its ancient history, before it sort of uh, became a, a more like commercialized and, and modernized, before it in, entered the modern era and became recognized as it is today, it, it was known as vino de mezcal de tequila, so a, ah. a mezcal wine of tequila. Well, what does that mean? It means a, a distilled product of mezcal, of mezcal or or agave plants. And from the town of Tequila, which is outside of Guadalajara, uh, the capital of the Mexican state of Jalisco. And so all over Mexico, in, in ancient history and, and up into the, the present day, you have these locally made distillates uh, from agave. They have uh, characteristics that are somewhat similar in that they're, you know, the agave has to be roasted. It has to be kind of converted from a complex sugar to a, a simple sugar so that it can be fermented. And traditionally... That was done over live coals. It was done in the ground in a pit oven. And then somehow those, those uh, roasted agaves were milled, whether by hand or by stone or by, by axe. And then that sugar is fermented and then it's distilled. There's lots of different uh, ways that can happen along the way. But in general, that's, those steps have to happen. And so those regional distillates of Mexico have ancient origins. And, and even as they're still made today, in most parts of Mexico, a couple of them have sort of emerged. And, and you could say that tequila became the most famous of them, right? 
It's the one that's uh, known around the world. And, but really, it's just a mezcal made from the town of Tequila. It's a lot more, there's a lot more to it than that today. Uh, but it started to emerge uh, in the, in the 1800s, you start to, to really see uh, distinct properties of these vinos de mezcal de tequila. One of them is that we don't, we, we, as this product becomes, you know, packaged, bottled, uh, shipped, shared, you know, outside the local community, um, you have to change the production method because these little conical pit ovens kind of become inadequate for the task of producing something on this uh, scale to meet the demand that it was growing for the product. And so what you start to see is producers roasting the agaves in clay brick ovens above ground. So steam heated okay. ovens, that's kind of one of the first big distinctions that makes tequila tequila that started you know, differentiating it as a type of mezcal, you know, unique from the other ones. And that it no longer had as much of that smoky profile because the agaves are getting roasted in an oven versus in a, in a pit in the ground. Okay. Another big distinction is that it does get bottled. It gets a label put on it. You know, a lot of these little regional distillates are made for local consumption. You go uh, down to your friendly, friendly farmer the same way you might pick up milk or, or some other uh, produce of agriculture, and you also get some, uh, some mezcal because it's, a, it's an agricultural product. And that's mm-hmm. another distinct feature of tequila as it modernizes is it becomes a commercial product, something put in a bottle, given labels, given brands, uh, shipped far and wide for consumption outside of just the local community. And then as far as, you know, kind of tying it to the the town of tequila and the surrounding region, you know, what is that, what is that area like? How, how, how distinct is it from, you know, as you mentioned, agave grows all over Mexico and Mesoamerica and, Various distillates are made from it all over, but are there are there some unique characteristics to the region that make it, if not specially well suited to the cultivation of agave and, and distillation thereof, but but at least give it distinctive character beyond just the production methodology? Sure. the The landscape of Jalisco is, I believe, actually a, a protected like a UNESCO a World Heritage Site. It is it is that unique that it's recognized as being as being distinct in, in the world. And you get outside of the city of Guadalajara half an hour and you start to see the rolling hills kind of covered in, in agave plants, agave cultivation. Uh, the further you get out in both directions, if you go sort of north and west, you get to uh, the town of Tequila. It's called the, the Tequila Valley, El Valle de Tequila. And it is, it is the local industry. It's quite remarkable. As, as the closer you get into that area, uh, Arenal, Amatitan, you see... Uh, just as far as the eye can see, the blue agaves are, are covering the hills. It's just a really gorgeous landscape. And uh, the infrastructure of the tequila industry is, is very prevalent there. And that is sort of the, the more ancient uh, area of tequila production. Now, up in what's known as the Altos or the highlands where we are, east of Guadalajara, you go up in elevation. But it's still, it's, it's a misnomer to call the Tequila Valley lowlands because it's still quite mountainous, uh, still mm. quite high. Uh, but east of Guadalajara towards Los Altos, the terrain changes. It becomes a little uh, more mountainous, a little drier. The soil has this very beautiful, distinct red hue, uh, rich in iron oxide, which helps impart unique flavors into the agave. And that's where Patron is located. That's where a lot of it's become kind of the premier growing region, I would say, probably reflecting a little bias. Uh, but <laughs> the the <laughs> the industry didn't really start developing there until the turn of the 20th century, but it is today, it's uh, more densely populated. There are more, more tequila plantations. They're more productive. And really some of the premier tequilas in the world, including Patron, 
come from the, the Los Altos region. And throughout this whole area, you know, there's microclimates and, and different terroir features that impart distinct flavors to the tequila. So the, regardless of where you are in, whether you're in the valleys or the highlands, the tequilas have uh, these sort of distinct, both, you know, natural, like ecological terroir and what we call human terroir, um, as the traditions of tequila making differentiate by area. Okay, so now I'm going to ask some more questions that are maybe simple or stupid, and I'm going <laughs> to just apologize up front, but hopefully this is useful not just for me, but for our listeners too. So is the agave that's cultivated either in the tequila region more generally or specifically for Patron, is that wild? Is it farmed? What is that like? Because a thing I know about agave is that it takes a, a fairly long time to reach a size that it can be harvested and used for tequila production. We're not talking about often my frame of reference, you know, it's not wine where you're getting a crop from the same vines every year. So, so what is the actual cultivation of agave like? Well, I'm glad you made the reference to wine because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that tequila and agave spirits are the only uh, distilled spirits made from a non-annual harvest in that the fruits of our production, the, the raw material going in is not an annual production as grapes yeah. are, as grain, as you know, stone fruits, et cetera, are. The raw material for most spirits are grown every year. In tequila production and, and agave spirits production, this is a years-long process. And as I mentioned, there's a couple hundred different types of uh, species and subspecies and hybrids of agave plants that grow throughout Mexico. But since the late 1800s, the industry started rallying around a specific plant, which is the Blue Weber agave, as being the primary agave for tequila production. And then in 1976, the, the Norma Oficial, which is the law that kind of governs tequila, actually made it official. It said you, you have to use this agave. You can't use any other agave mm -hmm. uh, sugar, essentially, in the production of your tequila and still call it tequila. So there's a few distinct features of the Weber Blue agave that make it suitable for tequila or for spirits production, let's call it, because it, the Weber Blue has a sibling or a cousin called called Espadine, which is the main agave used for mezcal, for, for mm -hmm. cultivated mezcal. So a couple features of it. For one thing, it matures fairly quickly. We're talking five, six, seven, eight years to full maturity versus, you know, there's wild species of agave. I've drank Tepestate mezcals that were 35 and 40 years old. Well, yeah. cl clearly that doesn't make for much of a, you can't make much of a commercial production out of that 35 and 40 year uh, mezcal, right? There's, uh, so there's a, a kind of quicker maturation. So that allows for the, the industry to kind of keep, keep producing it somewhat, somewhat comparatively quickly, let's call it. And then it also has a high concentration of sugar compared to other um, agave species. The, the Weber blue agave is efficient at storing inulin in the, in the center, in the heart of it. Um, so you, you kind of get more bang for your buck, I guess you could say with this, with this agave. And it also, its method of reproduction is conducive to, to a commercial product. So you have uh, several different ways agaves can reproduce. In the wild, they will shoot up this flower stalk called a quiote, and then, uh, you know, wild, uh, you know, bats, bees, uh, critters will pollinate the the flowers of the, of the agave and create a seed. And then the seed gets transferred or, you know, falls down and germinates. This is a very long process. And so in, uh, you will still find a plentiful 
uh, wild agave distillates in, in mezcal and some of the other regional dis- distillates of Mexico. But there is no longer and hasn't been for generations um, wild Weber blue agave. It's something that the, the human intervention, the relationship between basically tequila makers and this plant is, is over 100 years old now at this point. Mm-hmm. So the way that the Weber Blue produces that makes it kind of most fruitful, so to speak, for tequila, is it puts out these little babies called hijuelos, and they're colloquially called pups. And starting about the third year, the mother plant starts shooting out these rhizomes. It's a little baby. If you're, and you'll see this, like I live in Texas and in landscapes in my own neighborhood. And recently, not too long ago in my backyard, I had one. Uh, it puts out these little rhizomes, these little baby agaves that pop up around the base of the of the mother plant, and those are harvested. Um, they're, they're sort of trimmed, they're dried up a little bit, and that actually is the new plant. Okay. The Weber Blue is good at that process. It put, puts out a lot of hijuelos that can create healthy plants quickly, and I use that with the caveat because nothing is quick in, t- in the <laughs> world of traditional tequila production. But we're talking about a couple of year, years versus. A decade or something like that. And so that allows for this, as you said, cultivation that supports the industry at a scale and a pace that meets at least most of the modern demand as opposed to having to to, rely on wild species. And and during the planting season, before the rains come uh, late spring in in Jalisco, you'll see trucks of these uh, hijuelos getting uh, transported around the region as the producers get ready to plant the next harvest. What are like the conditions that are good for, I mean, obviously it sounds like much of the, of the area is good for growing agave. It's, as you said, endemic, but are there specific conditions, whether it's, I don't know, soil types is, are we talking about, is it better on hillsides? Like, again, pardon my ignorance. This is, this is me as mostly a wine person kind of wanting to know. Well, I think there are some crossover characteristics and I'm no expert in wine, but you know, the agaves are not irrigated. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. The part of the art of being an agavero is cultivating the land to retain the natural, you know, the rainfall that comes to that plantation. They they cultivate the lines of the contour lines of the fields and plant them such that they capture just the right amount of rain and also let go uh, too much water. Like agaves don't like soggy feet. Okay. They need good drainage. In the altos where we are, it's a higher elevation and so the agaves tend to grow more slowly, and that's a good thing. They, they mature and, be, and take on additional complexity over time as they grow. They like um, a lot of sunshine. It's very uh, sunny where we are. And, yeah, there's, there's distinctions uh, you know, from plantation to plantation that the agaves take on unique characteristics in the same way that wine does. We, in 2018, did an estate release. It was the first time that we'd ever produced agave and bought on our own soil and packaged it, distilled it, and bottled it for a specific production from our own hacienda. You know, mm-hmm. usually we contract with growers. It's one of our unique uh, sort of ways of guaranteeing a secure agave supply, and it's something. It's a, a business model that's that's actually been copied. I have heard by a lot of other producers because this, but by contracting with growers, we're essentially getting the best. Uh, instead mm-hmm. of uh, we're essentially focusing on what we are best at, which is producing tequila, and then leaving it to the grower producers to focus on what they do best, which is give us the highest quality agave. And we've set these sort of unique contracts in place because the agave market is can be very volatile. 
Um, uh, kind of tying into what we talked about earlier with it not being an annual production. If it's 2021, we're not buying agave for you know 2022. We're buying agave for 2027, 2028. Wow. This sounds impossible to believe, but we're buying out far ahead of time. We're working with these grower producers to guarantee that we get the the not just the supply but the quality. You know, we're specifying mm-hmm. specific parameters around which the growers will produce, you know, produce and harvest these agaves. And so in peak demand times, which we're in right now, agave is in peak demand. It's never been more expensive to produce 100% day agave tequila than it is uh, right now and over the last couple of years. And so when there's peak demand, it ensures that we actually get the agave. We have a, we, we do not have a, an agave supply problem because we've got these longstanding relationships with the, the producers. And then the flip side of it is when it's peak uh, supply, meaning that there's a glut of agave, the producers continue to care for the product because there's times when the value of agave gets so low that it actually costs more to harvest it than it does to just leave it in the field. Mm. And our producers know through their contracts with us, they will always make a profit on their produce, basically. They're, they're, we're, we're in a partnership with them. We, we also don't just sign a deal and say, we'll be back in seven years to pick up uh, 100 tons of agave or whatever. We're, we have a team of agronomists that work with them throughout the whole life cycle of the plant to make sure that the fields are being tended properly, to make sure that the agaves are healthy, that, the, that all of the sort of practices of the growers comply with with our processes both you know from human resources and and sustainability standpoint so the agave you know it's our main raw material that's the biggest input to our distillery and so there's a whole infrastructure in place to make sure that that's done uh, in a way that that really you know fits within our standards and how does then generally like an agavero determine if uh, an individual plant is ready to be harvested, what are the what are they looking for? I mean, obviously, I assume you can't just dig it up and test it. <laughs> so you got to kind of know what you're looking for from the outside. Yes. Well, that's it's the experience, you know. Yeah. And it's another thing about the agave marketplace is that when the prices go wild, all kinds of people get into the agave game that do not have expertise in the area, and that's a real problem for the industry. Uh, it, it's not the it's not the easiest thing uh, to produce in a in a responsible way, and so these growers that we've been pr- working with for years. I mean, we, the the families that we buy agave from, we have been buying agave from since since the very earliest days of the of the hacienda, and so it has the, those those producers have the experience to know what to look for. Something that happens in the demand in peak demand times is agaves get harvested too early. They're harvesting unripe or immature agave, which ultimately affects the flavor of the finished product. And that's a shortcut that we will never take. And we don't have to take it because we're literally working with the best experts in the industry to supply the agave. So as the, as the agave matures, as it as it grows up, I think we, we skipped a few stages. We went from sure. the ijuelos being planted in the field. You know, it, over the years, these the plants grow tall, they grow wide. And then as they start to become mature... They show signs that are that are indicators to you know the hemadores, the harvesters, and to, and to the farmers, the agaveros can can identify these signs that the the plants are starting to become mature. For one thing, the uh, the leaves, the pencas, they start to to sag a little bit, and I don't mean that they're they're not droopy; they're still straight. But imagine holding your arms up for you know five or six years straight <laughs> yes. up, and then you sort of start to fatigue a bit. 
your arms sort of spread. Uh, they come down a little bit. They're still straight out, but they're not quite as 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 high as they were. Um, the agave, the pencas sort of start to open up a bit. The base of the agave starts to swell because the plant is basically saying, "Okay, showtime. We're about to we're about to do our big our big moment." And the, the plant's big moment is different from ours as tequila makers. What the plant wants to do is shoot out this uh, flower stalk to to basically go through its sexual reproduction cycle. And so it's saving all that energy for that big moment. Um, what we want is actually to harvest that. So we don't want the flower stalk to shoot up because then the plant is, sh- is sh- shooting all that energy into into the, the flower flowering cycle versus you know the, what we need, which is uh, the carbohydrates to distill tequila. So if there is a quiote, we, we snip that. That's a sign that the plant's becoming mature. And other things, the, the base of the agave kind of goes from that beautiful blue, blue green that you're, I'm sure, familiar with, the mm-hmm. sort of iconic color of Weber blue agave, and it takes on a little bit more of a greenish-yellowish hue. Um, it can get the, the, the little spike at the end of the penca. The penca is the long leaf. There's this little spike at the end that can start to get a little shriveled. I'm a bartender by trade and, and marketer. <laughs> I don't, I'm not an agavero, so... I'm, I'm just telling you what I've heard from the professionals, that sure. this is how they, these are the signs they look for. Uh, but it, it's a generational thing. I mean, people, people learn this practice from their fathers and grandfathers, and it's passed down, you know, through, through families Absolutely. across generations. So there's a lot of, of expertise and knowledge that, that goes into this process. So then the, I don't want to, you know, there's obviously many, many details and we could spend a lot of time going into all of them. And as much as I would love to, I, I want to be respectful full of your time and our listeners time. So let's, let's maybe get to the sort of process of what is it from planting the ground to showing up at the Hacienda? What, what happens? And then maybe a little bit when the plants arrive at the Hacienda, what's kind of the process from there? The trucks come in, and, and I would say even even as the plants are being trimmed, the actual HEMA is one of the those sort of decision moments along the way where we start to really apply our our philosophy to the tequila making process. The way the plants are cut, how short the the or how close the shave is, you could say, um, the actual HEMA uh, is is one element of a distinct part of the distinct Patron process. We trim the agaves very tight to not include a lot of uh, chlorophyll that we think will ultimately uh, result in bitterness in the finished product. Uh, also sugar content. We're hiring, we're harvesting very high sugar content agave. And also the, there's these little red spots that can appear on the surface of the agave. They're good in that they're a sign that the agave is mature and it's almost like a sort of autonomous or spontaneous fermentation that's happening, but it, but too much of those affects the flavor. So in the harvest, we have specifications that we want uh, to, to make sure that these plants are worthy of becoming Patron tequila. When they arrive at the Hacienda, there's an inspection, there will be a sample uh, cutting to make sure that the plants meet the requirements. And then once they're unloaded onto the patios at the Hacienda, this is when you really start to see the Patron process unfold. First of all, the plants have to be, the, the piñas have to be roasted. The agaves are trimmed by hand uh, by what are called horneros, the uh, oven workers. They cut the agaves into uniform sizes and they hand load the ovens. So these are small ovens by comparison to what's kind of standard out in the world, is, or let's say what's possible out in the world. They're 14 tons. 
and these ovens are stacked by hand. So this there's a uniform cooking, and it's a slow process. We're talking about 79 hours uh, for these agaves to be uh, to be roasted, and that slow roasting imparts a depth of character that's not possible any other way. From the oven, the agaves are unloaded, and they have to be milled. And at Patron, okay. we have two different milling methods. One of them, and I think the most sort of imp- important, is the tahona. This is an ancient stone wheel, uh, several tons, that is pulled around a circular pit, and it crushes the agaves and the way the ro- the roasted agaves. And the way in which this uh, primitive machine works is, is imparts flavor profiles to the tequila uh, that would not otherwise be there via other methods. This isn't the most uh, efficient or effective way to make tequila. And the Tahona, imagine it being sort of like the Calistoga wagon of, of iconography. You know, it just sort of implies uh, an, uh, an ancient time. But in a lot of places in the tequila world, it's just a symbol. It's not actually a method of production. People will have these these Tahonas sitting outside their, their office or whatever, their tasting room, whether they use a Tahona or not. Again, we have 14 Tahonas right now crushing agave at Hacienda Patron. And our next, you know, the next biggest Tahona user has one or two. Oh, wow. uh, so the, the Tahona mill is an essential part of our production. And not just because of the, the means of crushing the agave, but also what happens next. The sugars that kind of come off of that crushing process are, are tossed in the fiber. And all of that is scooped up in, from the pit and put into these tiny little pine wood fermenters. That's another decision along the way that we've uh, made to maintain and preserve traditional tequila production. And here we are, uh, a major producer, you know, distilling a product uh, for global distribution, but still on an incredibly uh, small human scale, uh, these tiny 5,000 liter pine wood fermenters with the Tahona side of our distillery, that fiber is actually is actually in the fermentation tank. Wow. It's actually fermenting on the fiber, uh, which is another just very distinct and very rare process. Almost nobody does this in tequila anymore. And, and even into the first distillation. So they, it ferments for three days in these pine wood fermenters. And then the contents of the, of the fermenters are pumped into the primary stills. The first distillation is also done on the fiber. Again, there's a couple wow. distillers left and, and no major producers would, would ever go to the trouble and the, just the tremendous effort that it takes to make tequila in that way. And here we are doing it just on, a, on an incredible scale, but at a very you know, human handmade scale. And so that's the Tahona side of our distillery. On the other side of our distillery, the agaves are unloaded and they're crushed by what's known as a roller mill. This is a series of mechanical rollers that the agaves will go through. Water uh, jets kind of flow over it to wash the sugars off the fibers as they go through the rollers. And then that liquid is collected. So that, that uh, must, the sugary agave juice basically, is pumped into other pine wood uh, fermenters, f- pine wood tanks, and that liquid is fermented without the fiber. The fiber and the roller mill side just go straight to the compost area. And so you basically are making these, you've got the agaves come in on one stream, they divide uh, and go, go two paths through the distillery, and we basically make two distinct tequilas. On the roller mill side of our, te- of our distillery, you've got this very bright citric tequila on the Tahona side of the distillery, you've got this deep, herbaceous, agavaceous, uh, just just very uh, bold tequila. And those two spirits, when blended together, they make Patron Silver. That is where wow. the magic happens, is in the blending process. 
would it be fair to say that everything that Patron makes starts sort of starts out as Patron Silver? Is that right? There's not a separate process for making the tequila that will be aged for Reposado, Añejo, Extra Añejo, etc.? That is almost completely correct. Um, we Oh, tell me how I'm not completely correct. Yeah, like no, you're, you're, almost, you're almost there. The vast majority of, of the, you know, the output of our distillery is, is going to this, this blend of roller mill and Tahona liquid. And that tequila goes, you know, if it's going to get bottled, it gets, it gets proofed, you know, front to bottling proof. And then it gets, you know, hand bottled and, and, and shipped around the world to Patron lovers, wherever they may be. If it's going to be aged, it's that same tequila. So Patron silver is the base for most of our aged tequila. So if you're buying Reposado, Añejo uh, or extra Añejo that that did start its life as Patron Silver. We do have some other products that are made actually just the Tah- just from the Tahona only side. Uh-huh. So we will I, as the kind of leader in Tahona production, we have a few unique products that are made that are Tahona only uh, sort of uh, special releases. And then there's also some stuff that's you know we're, we're, we never stop innovating as as the category leader. We are always innovating. And so, so every type of cast we can get our hands on will be filled with with you know one or one or the other of those tequilas or the blend, just to see what happens. And then sometimes, yeah. you know, so I say oftentimes, the results are are quite remarkable. And what you'll see, you know, years down the road is something that aged in a cask or a combination of casks and and showed unique characteristics that became worthy of being bottled separately. And that's where we get into. Uh, the limited releases that we've done over time, you know, pushing the boundaries, honestly, of what can happen in aged tequila. When we launched Grand Patron Piedra about a decade ago, this was the first time anyone had done a four-year-old extra Añejo Tahona-only tequila. I mean, really kind of an extraordinary accomplishment at that time and, and still a spectacular liquid with Grand Patron Bordeos, you know, finished in, in first-growth Bordeaux casks, just an extraordinary accomplishment. And I would say still to this day, nobody has has put out anything quite like that. And, and it's been 15 years or so. Um, our newest edition uh, is called Patron Sherry Cask Aged Añejo. And this is uh, Patron Silver, basically, that, that spent over two years in Oloroso Sherry Casks. Not, not finished in Oloroso, but actually it's full, full aging was in Oloroso, oh, wow. in Oloroso Casks. So there's really, uh, there's no limit to what this distillery can do. The blenders at Patron are, are the best in the business, have been innovating, you know, for decades now in the in the category of aged tequila. And so there's just some truly remarkable stuff that comes out of our distillery. And as far as the sort of space at the distillery that we're, we're aging is happening, is it, are we talking about something kind of analogous to like a bourbon rickhouse where you're getting lost through heat and <laughs> evaporation like what is that like so there's similarities and differences with with bourbon country and when you walk in for one thing you get that incredible aroma like just like walking into a bourbon rickhouse you I know bet. where you are it's an unmistakable sense of place right when you walk into the tequila aging you know we're in the mountains so we do not get the wide swings that you get in in bourbon but you do get it still will get hot enough during the day and cool enough at night, there's still a temperature variation. So there is a lot of interaction in the wood. A key distinction in aging tequila versus bourbon is that bourbon is aged all in, not just bourbon, but all straight American whiskey is, is aged in new casks exclusively. Uh, you know, that, that results in a lot of used casks when American whiskeys are bottled. And so those casks get shipped around the world to you know Scotland, to the islands, to Mexico. And so we get 
tons of used American whiskey casks. And so when you put tequila into a used American whiskey barrel, the interaction and the development of flavor is a bit slower. And I think that's on purpose. You think about how with whiskey, you're putting a, a distillate into the barrel that, that most people don't consume unaged, right? You know, most people are not drinking white dog whiskey, uh, at least in, in polite society. Uh, <laughs> but in tequila, that plant's already been aging like six, seven, eight years in the ground. Yeah. So it has incredible complexity. And so in the long history of tequila and agave spirits in Mexico, you know, the vast majority of those are consumed unaged. They're silver, blanco, hoven, whatever the term term you want to use. Uh, they're they're unaged spirits. And it's a comparatively modern innovation. You know, I, I would guess the mid middle part of the 20th century onward um, that it became commonplace to age tequila. And now it's a it's a super fun, exciting, you know, dynamic time to be in the tequila business because uh, distillers are going crazy exploring the the outer reaches of what of what all you can do with with cask finishing in, in tequila. Another big distinction is that in in bourbon the barrels you know roll in and roll out on ricks. In tequila the barrels are sort of piled they're stacked on top of each other sort of like a solera system. Okay. So the liquid moves in and out, but the barrels stay. So the barrels um. will be used many many times in the tequila production process. The liquid will get kind of uh, pumped in and out of the barrel as it ages, but the barrel themselves stay there, you know, for a lot longer than they do, or for a lot more usages, I should say, than, than they do in, in bourbon. David, I have just a couple quick more questions um, that will help me and hopefully listeners better understand tequila and, and especially Patron. So let's start with this. Is there anything analogous to to vintages in tequila? You know, uh, that we think about with wine or maybe other, agave is not an annual crop in the same way that most everything else that is fermented and distilled is but but is there you know is there something to the idea of a of the maybe the year of harvest being significant or is it is that just not the case in agave production i would say yes and no uh, Great. yes yes and that this is a product of nature right it's i mean especially with patron it's an, a, a a natural product going in and it's a natural production you know with no with no sort of a scientific intervention along the way so the, the product itself, the agave is going in season to season, batch to batch, year to year, do come out somewhat differently within a very a narrow frame. At Patron, we're committed to consistency. If someone picks up a bottle of Patron anywhere in the world, we want them to know what to expect. So we actually blend for consistency. And each, each of our expressions has what we call like a library sample. So this is uh, the definition of what Patron Silver tastes like. This is the definition of what Patron Reposado tastes like, uh, so on and so forth. And so the blenders actually blend to that specification because, because we know that our consumers don't want a surprise bottle of Patron Reposado that doesn't taste like the last one. Sure. Now, that being said, it is also exciting when you taste a unique expression of Patron. And so over the years, we've, we've made many of those available. Like when something's kind of an exceptional lot, they get routed to be special releases. For many years, we've done uh, barrel select uh, samples. So retailers and accounts and the, like restaurants and bars might buy a single barrel of Patron. Well, that's a snapshot of a moment in time. That's very exciting uh, to see what, what that particular uh, tequila tasted from those few months that it was in the, uh, the in that particular type of barrel in that particular place in the, in the aging warehouse. So you know, so those are out there. Um, they're they're limited editions though. For the for the majority of our products, we we blend uh, away those 
you know those those kind of vintage variations. Uh, mm-hmm. I mentioned the estate release that we that we launched in September of 2018. We harvested the 4,600 or so piñas that were in front of our distillery, bottled about 31,000 bottles. That was a snapshot in time of a very special tequila, and those are you know those are very sought after. If you, if you see one, grab one because that's you know even even five or six years from now when we make the next estate release it will not taste exactly the same as that previous sure. state release because, you know, the weather was different or the soil conditions were different during that time. It's just, it's kind of an exciting, uh, it's exciting when you taste those vintage differences, but in general, mostly we, we blend for consistency. And then my last question, I know this is maybe an impossible one for you to answer. It's a little bit like asking someone to pick their favorite children. But if you were to say across the entire lineup, whether it's the core lineup or some of the the more special releases, here are, let's say, three bottles that someone who's really interested in understanding kind of the breadth of what Patron makes, what what, what should they look for? You're putting me in an impossible uh, I know. Uh, position. But that's my job as host. <laughs> I get to do that to the guests. You know... I would be remiss if I if I didn't first and foremost say our our flagship core you know Patron Silver, Green Ribbon you know the the Patron bottle that that you know and love it is it's a glorious expression of Highlands tequila in its most simple and perfect if I may use our own cliche uh, uh, way it is uh, it's zesty it's you know citric it's fun it's vibrant it's just it, it's something that I think people People have grown up, you know, shooting Patron Silver or putting it in a a margarita. When I pour Patron Silver in a glass by itself, no salt, no shaking with ice, no lime, and say, taste that, people's people's eyes light up. They're they're Mm -hmm. blown away by how incredible this sort of ubiquitous product is. It's sort of like it's like a stealth tequila sitting on the shelves (laughs) that everyone knows it, but but they haven't really ex- explored all of its vitality. It's just, it really is a remarkable spirit and I'm excited every time I taste it. And, and fortunately I, I get to taste it a lot. That is the essence of Patron is, is Patron silver um, a natural tequila that achieves all that flavor without using any kind of additives or any manipulation. It, that is literally what the distillers made, how it was blended and, and all the care that went into that bottle. It's, it's just remarkable. Um, I think that, especially if people are new to the category, looking at aged tequila is, is a great way into the category. And if you've, if you've been one of those silver sort of purists, I was a silver purist for many, many years before I started working for Patron. And once I started tasting our aged expressions, it really changed my, uh, my opinion about aged tequilas. Aged tequilas have so much complexity and, and so much uh, just range of, of flavor. When you look at Patron Añejo, that is the other end of the agave spectrum. So you've got, you're introducing all these holiday baking spices and the, these rich tropical fruits that pop up and the, a little bit of the tannicness from the barrel. If someone's a whiskey drinker, I think that they would be stunned by Patron Añejo or, or Patron Extra Añejo. And then sitting in the middle, and this is distinct to the tequila category, is Reposado. You don't mm-hmm. see this in other, in other spirits categories where you've got a product that's sort of like sort of aged. Right. It's like kind of <laughs> yeah. aged, not all the way aged and not unaged. It's just kind of aged. 
that's tequila's little quirk and it's fun because you get all of the agave forward notes from a silver tequila and you you kind of start dancing with the barrel influence from añejo but you're just like right there in the middle and it's in in, in that case reposados can be very perfect but to answer your question and not so long-winded away i have a lot of favorites and it really depends on my mood it depends on the weather it depends on yeah, I don't know what, a, what, you, a, what a dinner. Yeah, who I'm with. Yeah, that's one of the other beautiful things about tequila is that in a single portfolio of, of a single family of spirits, like with Patron, you've got a whole bunch of different expressions that are perfect for different occasions and different moods. Excellent. Well, David, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for indulging my ignorant questions with grace and uh, good cheer. And I look forward to sharing a glass of Patron whatever uh, at some point <laughs> in the future. All right. I'll start working on a menu for our next meeting. <laughs> Fantastic. This podcast series is in partnership with Patron Tequila, the world's number one super premium tequila that is passionately handcrafted in the highlands of Jalisco, Mexico. To learn more about Patron, visit PatronTequila.com.